Dr. Joel Richard Paul is the Albert Abraham, excuse me, Abramson Professor of Law and former Associate Dean at the University of California Hastings Law School, where he teaches constitutional law and international economic law. He also has taught on the law faculties of the University of California, Berkeley, Yale University, the University of Connecticut, Leiden University in the Netherlands, and American University. Joel has written numerous books and articles and testified to Congress about constitutional issues and international trade policy. He is the author of Unlikely Allies, How a Merchant, Playwright, and a Spy Saved the American Revolution, named one of the best books in 2009 by the Washington Post. He recently finished writing a musical based on Unlucky Allies, which is being workshopped next month in New York. His most recent book is Without Precedent, Chief Justice John Marshall and His Times, which we're here to hear about today. The Wall Street Journal called it a scholarly but highly readable and often entertaining chronicle. Marshall's lasting achievements are ably served by Mr. Paul's deep felt and penetrating biography. Please join me in welcoming Joel for his lecture on our work without precedent. Thank you very much, Jamie. Thank you very much for that kind introduction. Uh, thank you to, uh, to Jamie and to the board and the Historical Society for uh, having me here today. Um, and uh, I, I'm, I'm especially uh, grateful uh, to be back in, in uh, Richmond, in John Marshall's hometown, uh, where uh, people, I think, uh, live and breathe his legacy all the time uh, and can appreciate uh, the significance of John Marshall's contribution uh, to what our nation has become. Uh, I, uh, when I started writing the book seven years ago, I had no idea how popular a subject the Supreme Court was going to be. <laughs> and uh, my, my, my publishers are very gratified by that. Uh, and so as I travel around the country talking to different groups of people about John Marshall, it's clear that a lot of people have a, a feeling that um, something is slipping or something is changing in the country. Um, there's a sense in which um, uh, constitutional norms that have been around for a long period of time are suddenly changing at a very rapid pace. And normally, when we think about constitutional norms or any kind of norms, we think of them as sort of slowly evolving over time. But we seem to be in a kind of normative earthquake. Uh, and, and, and there seems to be some kind of uh, sense, at least among some people in the country, that we are approaching a, a kind of constitutional crisis. We're on the precipice of something different. Uh, and we're not quite sure how that's going to get resolved. Now, we've experienced constitutional crises before. We've seen them you know, uh, most recently, I guess, in the, in the Nixon era when um, uh, the famous Nixon-Watergate tapes case, where Nixon was uh, ordered by the court to turn over the Watergate tapes. And at first, he refused to do so and claimed executive privilege. And then you had a case going up to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court unanimously ordered uh, the president to turn over the tapes. And he did. And of course, we know what happened as a result of that. Um, if something like that should happen now, um, if you know, there was a subpoena to the president, or if there were uh, one of the state courts indicted the president, or something like that, or if the president tried to pardon himself, and 
we're not quite sure what would happen in that situation. I'm not sure that the Nixon case is a really good analogy uh, for our present situation, because there seems to me there's some distinguishing characteristics of the present situation that we're in. If, in fact, we have a constitutional crisis, I mean, one of the differences is that in the Nixon case, of course, both houses of Congress were controlled uh, by the Democrats. Uh, and so uh, Congress was more independent of the president. Today, of course, the president's party controls both houses. And uh, maybe another significant difference is um, the uh, relevance uh, of having a foreign government uh, interfere in our election process. Um, and whether the president did or didn't know or whether he was or wasn't involved in it, at least there seems to be pretty overwhelming evidence now that there was some kind of interference by the Russians and that that seems to be continuing over time. And that, of course, is different as well. And then I guess the third aspect, which maybe makes a difference here, is that um, uh, President Nixon, for all of his faults, um, uh, was a guy who was trained in the law. He was... He was uh, he was someone who I think had a great deal of respect uh, for the rule of law. And the president today has, from time to time, expressed a kind of um, a disrespect for legal processes, for the ordinary legal processes anyway. He's been critical of his own Department of Justice and critical of, his, uh, of the courts in various cases that he's been involved in. So it's not entirely clear how this president might react if the Supreme Court were to issue an order to him. Um, it seems to me like a better analogy uh, of our present situation really uh, is to go back to the Jeffersonian crisis uh, in uh, 1801 when uh, President Jefferson was elected president because um, we don't think about it that way today. Today, you know, most of us celebrate Jefferson as a great hero, but at that time, when Jefferson was elected president, the country was deeply divided by his presidency. He was seen, much like President Trump, as a populist, uh, as a disruptor, as somebody who was going to shake things up in Washington. Uh, and the morning after his election, people in the country felt more or less the same way a lot of people felt in this country the morning after the 2016 elections, that uh, suddenly uh, someone who uh, represented a populist movement had been swept into office with the commanding majority of both houses of Congress uh, uh, with a, a program, with a platform of wanting to, sort of, to, to disrupt things uh, in, a, in a radical way. And that um, just like President Trump, there were also issues about the involvement of a foreign power in our elections because people don't realize this, but the, the Jeffersonian Republican Party, and I'm going to use the term Republican Party, but of course that's not the Republican Party today. Jefferson was famously the guy who's the, who uh, started the Democratic Party, but at that time it was, he called it the Republican Party. So the Jeffersonian Republican Party really came into being um, not by Jefferson's hand, but really by the hand of the then French emissary uh, to uh, Washington, uh, Edmund Charles Genet, uh, famously known as Citizen Genet. It was Citizen Genet arrives in America. Um, this is during Washington's time. And Citizen Genet travels up the seaboard, uh, the eastern seaboard. Uh, and wherever he goes, he starts Republican clubs. And it was those Republican clubs that really became the foundation for the Jeffersonian Republican Party. And 
the Republicans, the Jeffersonian Republicans, were closely allied with France. Um, Jefferson himself uh, was, was a great believer in the French Revolution. Even after the French Revolution became very violent, and uh, uh, when it was clear that there was a great deal of bloodshed, um, you know, when the, when, the, when the king, King Louis XVI, was decapitated, uh, Jefferson kind of shrugged that off as sort of a necessary kind of collateral cost of a revolution. Even when his friend, uh, the Marquis de Lafayette, was arrested uh, by the French revolutionaries and was threatened uh, with execution, uh, Jefferson didn't raise a word of protest. And so many Americans felt that Jefferson was a radical. He was an extremist. Um, he was someone who's going to really shake up and divide the country in a fundamental way. And it was in response to that sort of Jeffersonian crisis that uh, the Federalists in Washington were desperate to find some way to try to defend basic constitutional norms. Uh, John Adams, then our president, um, decides uh, that he's going to try to uh, build a kind of ba uh, uh, a bulwark against the influence of the Republican Party in our court system. And so, uh, the Federalist Congress, uh, the lame duck Congress in the, in the month or so before Jefferson takes office, they, they pass, um, first of all, the 1801 Judiciary Act, which was an act that created all of our courts of appeal. Up to this point in time, you know, the Supreme Court, you just had district courts and you had the Supreme Court. You didn't have an intermediary uh, appellate level of courts. And so the justices, when they... Uh, were not serving in Washington, um, they had to serve as circuit court judges. And the reason we call it a circuit court is because literally they'd get on a horse and they'd ride circuit around the country hearing cases and taverns, and, uh, you know, sleeping in inns, sharing beds with strangers. Um, that was the life of a Supreme Court justice at the time. So the circuit courts were created uh, by the Federalists um, as a way of kind of putting their people uh, in power uh, to sort of hold back whatever extreme measures the Republicans might attempt to, uh, to, to legislate. And then in addition to that, they also created the DC Organic Act, which was an act that created um, 42 justices of the peace in the District of Columbia. What's really remarkable about that is at the time, the District of Columbia only had about 3,000 people. So you've got 42 judges and 3,000 people. It's a little excessive, but it was a way in which the Federalists were planning to reward their you know, political cronies and friends. Um, and then the third problem that, Jeff that uh, Adams faced was what to do about the Supreme Court. Um, the uh, the Federalists decided that they should shrink the size of the court down. So the court at that time had six justices. They decided to reduce it to five justices so that the Republican president couldn't appoint uh, his own justice. And there was an opening on the court for the chief justice position. And um, uh, it was difficult to full, fill these jobs because no one really wanted to be a Supreme Court justice. It was, it was a really a lousy job. Uh, <laughs> It was paid terribly. It paid almost nothing. Uh, you had to ride horseback around the country for months at a time, uh, hearing these cases in taverns. There was no real respect to being a Supreme Court justice. Um, they had very few cases. They only heard uh, 
about uh, six cases a year. And they were um, not particularly important cases. They were mostly admiralty-type law cases that came up to the court. So the Supreme Court really didn't have, didn't command any respect. Uh, in fact, it commanded so little respect that when they were building the, uh, the courthouse, uh, well, I'm sorry, when they were building Washington, D.C., um, they forgot to include a courthouse. <laughs> and, and so when the Supreme Court you know, meets for the first time in Washington, um, they have to find a committee room in the ground level floor of the Congress. Um, and Congress sort of grudgingly lets them borrow this room for the Supreme Court, the District Court, the Court of Appeals. So they didn't really get any respect, the Supreme Court. And uh, no one wants the job. Uh, there had been, at this point, uh, three previous uh, Supreme Court chief justices. Um, John Jay, uh, who quit to run for governor of New York, because that was considered a step up. Uh, uh, then uh, there was, um, uh, I just blanked on that, oh, John Rutledge, uh, who was appointed um, uh, as an interim appointment by George Washington. He was the first Supreme Court justice to be rejected by the Senate, unless uh, you think that's a new trend. Uh, uh, John Rutledge uh, was rejected primarily because of his political views. He, was, he, was, uh, he had been critical of, uh, of a Jay's treaty, um, and uh, some of the Federalists felt he wasn't really a loyal Federalist, so they rejected him. And, and then Elbridge, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Ellsworth, um, uh, Justice, Chief Justice Ellsworth was appointed, uh, and he was a guy who had, um, had been, um, well, basically, he was bored with the job. Uh, he, he was bored with the job. He claimed he was ill, uh, and he quit. Um, and so, and they had to fill the job. So he offers the job. John Adams offers the job to John Jay. And John Jay um, says he doesn't really want to leave New York for that job because he's you know, been there, done that. Uh, and in desperation, just a month before Jefferson's going to take office, uh, he calls in his Secretary of State, John Marshall, and he says, you've got to take this job. Um, and Marshall doesn't really want the job either, because it is a lousy job. And he'd rather go back to Richmond, uh, where his wife, Polly, uh, who's very ill and is largely confined to an upstairs bedroom and you know, doesn't really um, get out much to see people, he wants to go back to his wife. Uh, and he's promised her, in fact, he's going to go back to his wife at the end of the Adams administration. But he feels a duty to take on this job because he feels threatened by Jefferson as well. And, and he has good reasons for being threatened by Jefferson because Jefferson, as many of you know, was his cousin. And they hated each other. <clears throat> um, there was a deep family animosity between Jefferson and Marshall, uh, which was also reflected in the differences in their political philosophies, of course. And it didn't help that John Marshall had married Polly Ambler, who was the daughter of Thomas Jefferson's first love. <laughs> so you can imagine there's a little hostility about that. Um, anyway, John Marshall decides to take the job uh, as, as, uh, as Chief Justice. And um, let me read you a little bit about what Washington was like at the time when Marshall takes office. Um, this is from my book, by the way. <laughs> Washington in 1801 
was what Congressman and Treasury Secretary Albert Gallatin called a hateful place, devoid of any real society or charm. Uh, there were scarcely 3,000 inhabitants, including at least 600 slaves. Clustered around the Capitol were six boarding houses, packed with members of Congress, sometimes two to a bed. A grocer, a tailor, a dry goods store, a shoemaker, and a laundry. That was it. The rest of the city still consisted largely of swampland, some would say it still does, forest and brush, miles of unpaved and unmarked roads, separated houses, so that an invitation to dine often entailed an expedition of several hours with an uncertain outcome. In this social desert, men resorted to whomever was available for companionship and conjugation. As often happens, government provided an appealing market for prostitution. The Supreme Court under Chief Justice Marshall convened for the first time on February 2nd, 1801 in a dark, nondescript ground floor room in the north wing of the unfinished Capitol. The planners of the capital city had neglected to build a federal courthouse, so only a few days prior, Congress had grudgingly agreed to let them use committee room number two, which they shared with the federal district court and the court of appeals. The room was the size of a small classroom and unadorned except for the crimson robes edged in ermine that hung on pegs in one corner. There were two windows facing west that overlooked a swamp, a line of poplar trees, and a muddy creek that some wit had named the Tiber after the river in ancient Rome. <laughs> there was no formal bar or bench, and the justices sat behind a table facing the lawyers uh, and a few rows of chairs for a scattering of spectators. The public had little interest in the court's languid calendar with an average of six cases a year. This prosaic scene and the physical location of the court underscored the lowly status of the nation's highest court. Chief Justice Marshall sat wedged between his more rotund colleagues. They were all men of far greater experience and learning than Marshall. On one end was the aged Justice William Cushing. He was the first associate justice appointed by George Washington and probably the last American judge to wear a horsehair wig. <laughs> his shoe buckles and his three-cornered hat branded him as old-fashioned, and he wore that brand with dignity. Then there was an empty seat for Justice William Patterson of New Jersey, a boisterous Irishman with a lively intellect and shrewd political instincts. Since the court's docket had nothing of significance, and since Washington was such a dismal place in the winter, Judge Patterson had decided to delay his return in the court until spring. And then came Justice Samuel Chase of Maryland, who resembled a bear with his bulky mass and his fierce demeanor. His rough complexion earned him the nickname Old Bacon-Face Chase. <laughs> Chase's views and fiery personality led to a controversy that would ultimately threaten the court's independence and test Marshall's political instincts. Uh, finally, there was the puckish Justice Alfred Moore from North Carolina, who, like Marshall, had just been appointed by President Adams. At slightly more than four feet tall, Justice Moore peered from behind the table like a hand puppet between his much larger colleagues. <laughs> 
Unlike the other justices who dressed in the elegant gowns favored by the British High Court judges, Marshall wore a plain black robe that hung loosely on his tall, narrow frame. Marshall's robe was a symbolic gesture. Uh, he toned down the judiciary's pomp to conform to the classical simplicity that was favored by the Republicans. But it wasn't merely for show. Marshall's manner and dress were always plain and simple. Even when his innate intelligence and personality had thrust him into the public eye, he never forgot who he was or where he came from. His manner was entirely ordinary. He was not a philosopher like Jefferson. Marshall's federalism sprung not from a theory, but from his practical experience as a frontiersman, a soldier, and an attorney. The contrast with the Republican Jefferson was striking. Jefferson lived his life on a grand scale. He extravagantly squandered his family's fortune to perfect his classical home at Monticello. He much preferred scholarly pursuits in practicing his violin to indulging in the sweaty give and take of politics. Jefferson may have loved humankind, but he was not especially fond of people. <laughs> Though Marshall belonged to the party of elites, he practiced republicanism in his everyday life. If Jefferson lived his life in poetry, Marshall lived his in prose. For Marshall, the struggle for human dignity was experienced in the cases he fought and in the humanity and respect he showed to the least among us in his quotidian routines. So that gives you a sense of what Marshall was facing when he came to office. And the Republicans, of course, once they take office, um, are going to fight back. Um, and the first thing the Republican Congress does is they pass the Repeal Act that repeals the Judiciary Act that the Federalists have just passed in 1801. So an 1802 Repeal Act takes away, eliminates the circuit courts, which is a little bit strange because our Constitution says that you can't fire judges, that judges have lifetime tenure. But eff effectively, the Republican Congress fired all of the judges who had just been appointed. And um, they also decided that they would simply cancel the Supreme Court's term for that year um, because they really, Jefferson did not like the idea that Marshall, his cousin, was now going to be Chief Justice. And at the same time, the Republican Congress initiated a process of trying to impeach the Federalist judges from office. And so they started with Judge uh, Addison in Pennsylvania. They impeached him uh, and convicted him. Uh, then they went after Judge Pickering in New Hampshire, and they convicted him. Uh, and then the third judge they went after was Justice Samuel Baconface Chase. And everybody understood that Chase was really just a proxy from John Marshall, that really what Jefferson and the Jeffersonian Republicans wanted to do was to rid the influence of the Federalists, especially John Marshall, uh, in the federal judiciary. And it's in that environment that the famous case of Marbury versus Madison occurs. Um, William Marbury was a guy who uh, had been appointed to one of these DC uh, uh, justices of the peace positions that uh, Adams had created. Um, and when Jefferson takes office, he finds on, his, on Marshall, Marshall's desk, as Secretary of State, he finds on his desk a 42 commissions that hadn't been delivered to the justices of the peace. So uh, Jefferson orders his Secretary of State, James Madison, not to deliver the commissions, just hold on to them. 
And William Marbury then files um, for what's called a writ of mandamus, basically an order from a court to deliver his commission. Now, you have to understand something about William Marbury, which is he didn't really want the job. <laughs> he didn't need the job. Um, William Mar uh, the Justice of the Peace position was basically, they, it was unpaid, first of all, and second of all, uh, their jobs were primarily to arrest prostitutes and drunks. And William Marbury was the president of the largest bank in the District of Columbia. And he came from a wealthy, uh, socially uh, elite family in Maryland. He didn't want this job. He wanted to embarrass Thomas Jefferson. And he wanted to go after James, uh, James Madison. And so he files this writ of mandamus. And this creates a problem uh, for Marshall's court. First of all, he filed a writ of mandamus in the Supreme Court under uh, something called Section 13 of the 1789 Judiciary Act. You don't need to, there'll be an umpia question and answer period afterward, which I'm not going to test anybody. But the 1789 Judiciary Act establishes the jurisdiction of the Supreme Court and the other courts. And basically, he files for this writ of mandamus from the Supreme Court. And it puts Marshall in a very awkward position. There's really two problems in this case. The first problem is, um, an evidentiary problem. How do you prove that this commission was actually issued? I mean, the commission had been, you know, authorized by Congress. Congress had appointed, uh, had, had approved, had given its advice and consent to the appointment of, of uh, William Marbury. And, you know, the commission had been sent over to the Secretary of State's office, and the Secretary of State had put the great seal of the United States on the, on the commission. Um, uh, it just hadn't gotten delivered. But how do you prove that the commission is there if you don't have the physical evidence of the commission? Well, the way in which they got around that problem was that John Marshall's brother, James Marshall, um, submitted an affidavit. Uh, and James Marshall, by the way, was, a, was one of the circuit court judges who'd been appointed to the District of Columbia Circuit Court. James Marshall uh, signs an affidavit saying that um, he had been given the responsibility by his brother to deliver this commission. And um, he just didn't get around to it. So he left the commission behind. But he knows that the commission was actually issued. Um, the problem with that is it turns out it's not true. <laughs> um, it, turns out, it turns out that um, the, the best person to to prove that this commission had actually been issued was John Marshall. But of course, he couldn't submit evidence to his own court as chief justice. So he wrote to his brother and said, you know, I did this really stupid thing. I forgot to deliver the commissions. What am I going to do now? And his brother signs an affidavit, which is almost certainly false. Um, and um, Marshall essentially suborns perjury in his court to get into evidence the fact that these commissions were issued. Now, that sounds really terrible, and it is terrible, and I'm not suggesting that we should go along with that. Perjury's a bad thing. But, <laughs> but this was a situation where the Republicans kind of had the Federalists over a barrel. They basically refused to deliver over to the court the congressional record showing that the commission had been approved by Congress. They wouldn't, they wouldn't uh, admit the, the evidence into, into, uh, into the court. And um, 
even James Madison refused to show up in court. So James Madison, the father of our Constitution, is being sued in this case, and he refuses to show up. That's how little respect the Supreme Court commanded at the time. Well, um, the other problem in the case is that Marshall knows that there's no possibility that if they issue an order to James Madison to deliver over the commission to William Marbury, that Madison's going to listen to the court. Because the court's kind of in irrelevancy at this point in time. So he's got to find a way to somehow not do that thing. <laughs> but at the same time, he wants to make a point about the, the court's independence and its standing. And so what he does is he gets the court to agree to issue a unanimous decision. Now, up to this point in time, courts in the United States didn't issue official opinions. Each judge would write his own opinion uh, in the British style. But Marshall came up with the idea that the court should issue one opinion, should speak with one voice, because it was important in this environment in which the court's independence was really being threatened that they all come together and they speak with one voice. So they did so. And they, they, he writes this opinion where basically he says, James Madison and Thomas Jefferson are in violation of the law. Congress passed this commission. Congress authorized this commission. The commission was signed and sealed, and it should have been delivered. And the failure to deliver the commission is a violation of the law. But he says, we don't have jurisdiction to hear this case. Now, that's a little strange, right? Because normally cases, courts don't decide the merits of a case before they decide that they have jurisdiction to hear the case. <laughs> but Marshall is asserting that the reason they don't have jurisdiction is that this Section 13 of the 1789 Judiciary Act, the one that said the court could issue writs of mandamus, is actually in conflict with Article Three of the Constitution that created the Supreme Court. He says that um, Article Three didn't imagine that the Supreme Court could issue writs of mandamus. So Congress couldn't add to the court's authority the power to issue these writs. And so he says, where you have a conflict between the Constitution and a law, the law must fall that the Constitution takes precedence, and we, the court, are the ones to decide when the Constitution takes precedence over a law. This is, of course, the principle of judicial review. Now, most people attribute to Marbury versus Madison the significance that it establishes the principle of judicial review. That is not true. In fact, during the ratification debates here in, in Richmond, John Marshall himself made the argument in the ratification debates as a delegate to the ratification debates that the, under the Constitution, the, const the, the courts would be able to strike down statutes that were unconstitutional. And most people, even Thomas Jefferson, agreed with that principle. What was controversial in Marbury versus Madison was the idea that the Supreme Court of the United States could sit in judgment on the actions of the executive branch and could actually decide that, that they had jurisdiction over members of the executive branch, like the Secretary of State, and could order them to do something, could actually say that their actions were illegal. That's the real significance of Marbury versus Madison.
But you have both of these principles, judicial review and the power to supervise the executive branch, to strike down acts of Congress and acts of the executive branch that are unconstitutional or illegal. That's the significance of Barbary versus Madison. And the genius of the opinion is that by deciding that they didn't have jurisdiction, Marshall avoided a direct conflict with Jefferson. In fact, there is no conflict between Section 13 and the Constitution. I lied. Um, those things are not, in fact, in conflict at all, if you look at the language of Section 13 and the Constitution. Marshall apparently had orchestrated the whole case. He engineered the case at the beginning. He had gotten Charles Lee, the attorney for William Marbury, to file the case in the wrong court on purpose. <laughs> on purpose so that he could arrive at this decision and avoid a conflict with Jefferson while at the same time making these important principles. And it's really Marbury versus Madison, which is the beginning of the elevation of the Supreme Court from the basement of the Congress to a co-equal branch of the federal government. So who was this guy, John Marshall, who could invent the law this way? Uh, what where did he come from? From 1775 to 1835, for six decades, John Marshall dominated every aspect, uh, every important battle, every important decision that was made, both domestically and internationally, in, in our republic's history. Um, uh, he, was, uh, he was everywhere, um, uh, at the center of every important event that we had. Um, he, was a, he was a soldier who had fought bravely uh, in defense of Richmond um, and Norfolk. Uh, he had served in Valley Forge, where he befriended uh, George Washington and Alexander Hamilton before he was a musical. Uh, <laughs> And also the famous, uh, the famous uh, general, Baron, Pr the Prussian general, Baron von Steuben, who was, uh, in fact, neither a baron nor a Prussian general, but that's another story. <laughs> and he, he, um, uh, uh, he went on to become uh, a reform-minded delegate uh, here in Richmond uh, in the House of Delegates. He was the youngest man ever elected to the Executive Council of Virginia. Uh, he was, uh, at the ratification debates, he was really the guy who basically persuaded Virginia to adopt the Constitution. Um, as, you, as you know, Virginia at the time was the most important colony. It's, some would say it still is the most important state. Um, uh, Virginia, Virginia um, was deeply divided about adopting the Constitution. Patrick Henry deeply opposed the Constitution. And, um, uh, it really fell on James Madison and John Marshall, who were the leading uh, protagonists in favor of the adopting the Constitution, the ratification debates. And basically, I mean, James Madison was a brilliant man, um, but he was kind of a nerd. Um, he had an oversized head and a squeaky voice, and he was a hypochondriac. And as I, I, I joke in the book that the father of our Constitution had a poor one of his own. Um, <laughs> But he, he, was, he was very, he was always kind of on the outs. He was on the fringes. He wasn't the guy you wanted to go have a, a, a glass of Madeira with 
But John Marshall was that guy. He was a very gregarious, outgoing, optimistic, positive, funny fellow with great stories. And he really managed to win over the delegates. And at the ratification debates, um, the Constitution is finally ratified by only 10 votes. So imagine without John Marshall there, it probably wouldn't have happened. And without Virginia, we would not have had our Constitution. We wouldn't have had George Washington as president either. So Marshall was, was really uh, uh, the indispensable man at the ratification debates. And after the ratification debates, uh, he gets sent on this uh, uh, diplomatic mission to France, the French to, to try to persuade the French to stop interfering in American ships. And some of you may remember this affair. It's known as the XYZ affair. Uh, and Marshall um, sort of stands up to the French. Uh, he gets, he, he, uh, 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 the French are demanding a bribe uh, from the Americans before they'll even talk to the Americans. And Marshall basically says, no, we're not going to pay you a penny. And he comes back to America as a huge hero. And uh, uh, he wants to go back to his law practice in Richmond. But uh, George Washington says, you know, you have to run for Congress. We need you in Congress. So he runs for Congress. He's swept into Congress. And in his single term in the House of Representatives, he becomes the leader of the Federalist Party. Um, he is the guy who gives the eulogy when, when, when George Washington dies in Congress. Um, uh, and uh, it's out of Congress that uh, uh, John Adams plucks him to be Secretary of State. Um, and, and when John Adams offers him the job as Secretary of State, he'd already turned down other jobs as Secretary of, uh, of War and also as uh, Attorney General. Uh, he takes the job as Secretary of State because he really doesn't want to live in Washington. He wants to come back to Richmond. Um, <clears throat> you see what people do to kind of live in your town? <laughs> and he, he, wants to, he wants to come back to Richmond, and he figures that um, if he takes the job as Secretary of State, he'll just be Secretary of State till the end of Adams' term, which is over in nine months, and then he'll come back to Richmond at the end of the term. Whereas if he stays in Congress, he, he feels that if he gives up his seat, then people will say he's a loser. So. Uh, he takes the job as Secretary of State. And when he, when he goes to Washington to, to take the job for the first time, and of course, we had just moved the capital from, uh, from uh, uh, Pennsylvania, from Philadelphia, um, Adams meets him and says, look, uh, my, my wife, Abigail, hates this place. Um, uh, she thinks it's a swamp. And um, uh, I'm going back to Quincy to live with her. Here are the keys. You're in charge. And he leaves. And John Marshall, John Marshall's the guy who ran the government of the United States for nine months. Um, he was in charge of every department except the War Department. Everything the government did, he was in charge of. Um, uh, he oversaw uh, all of the territories. He oversaw patents and trademarks. Uh, he was in charge of the Justice Department, because at that time, the Attorney General didn't run the Justice Department. John Marshall ran the Justice Department. And he actually supervised the, f the completion of, of Washington, D.C. He did all of that, while at the same time we were threatened by war with France, Britain, Spain, and the Barbary pirates. And he is literally fighting off all of those four powers while running the government with nine people in his office as Secretary of State. And he manages somehow to sort of navigate his way through all of these domestic and international controversies. Until finally, of course, he's appointed as Chief Justice. And as Chief Justice, 
You know, most people, when you, when you mention John Marshall, when I tell people I'm writing about John Marshall, people would say to me, you know, what, Marbury versus Madison? How much of a book is that? Um, that's all people know about John Marshall. And that case, in some ways, has eclipsed all of his other accomplishments. Uh, and even as Chief Justice, he did far more than that. I mean, he establishes the principle of judicial supremacy, uh, the supremacy of the Supreme Court. But he also establishes the principle of the supremacy of Congress, the notion that Congress had the authority to, to uh, uh, regulate uh, the states uh, in ways that would help to knit our country closer together and build a national economy. And, and part of the reason he did this, and you have to understand this, is part of the reason he did this was because he saw the possibility that at some point in the future, Congress would be able to regulate slavery out of existence. And when, you know, he, one of his famous cases, McCulloch versus Maryland, some of you may remember that case, the case about the power of Congress to create the national banks. That's not about the power to create national banks. And Gibbons versus Ogden isn't about the power to regulate um, uh, navigation either. What those cases are really about, and what they were understood to be about, was the power of Congress to regulate slavery, to put slavery out of business. Um, that was John Marshall. And John Marshall is also the guy who first introduced the idea that international law is part of our law, and that not just American citizens, but also aliens have rights that are protected under our Constitution. Uh, he, he introduced um, the principle that, um, uh, I'm sorry, I lost my place. Um, Right. Uh, he introduced the principle that corporations, uh, that corporations were legal entities, um, that, uh, that, that they had rights as legal entities. And he protected the rights of corporations and of private colleges and of private property. Uh, he, he also, importantly, uh, protected um, the Indian tribes. He established the idea that the Indian tribes were, were sovereign uh, relative to the states and that the states couldn't interfere with uh, the Indian nations. Uh, and, and finally, he also, and perhaps most importantly, he really safeguards the freedom of speech uh, at a time when Jefferson was really proposing a doctrine that would have threatened uh, freedom of speech in this country. Uh, this was during the trial of Aaron Burr. Uh, and Jefferson, in desperation to try to get Aaron Burr uh, convicted, uh, proposes uh, a theory known as constructive treason, which was an ancient British doctrine that the British had long since given up. But the idea of constructive treason was that anybody who insults the crown, anybody who insults the sovereign, um, can be con convicted of treason. Uh, and Jefferson's position was that you know, Aaron Burr had insulted him and that he should therefore be hung. John Marshall, John Marshall was the guy who said, no, you know, our Constitution, our First Amendment, uh, uh, our First Amendment repudiates the principle of constructive treason. And it's because of John Marshall's decision in that case, which of course aggravated Thomas Jefferson, that Thomas Jefferson today is thought of as a great civil libertarian and, and not as a bloodthirsty tyrant uh, who, who was responsible for executing his own vice president. I mean, it's John Marshall who really redeems Thomas Jefferson's reputation. Uh, and uh, he did all of these things as Chief Justice. Um, and really, in my view, there's no one, there's no one in the founding generation of all the great Virginians, there is no one who had a more enduring impact on what our country has become than John Marshall.
Uh, and there's no one uh, who did more than John Marshall uh, to preserve the delicate uh, fragility, frailty of the, uh, of, of the fledgling republic. Uh, uh, all of that uh, is his legacy. Uh, how am I doing on time? I'm running out of time. Let me stop there <laughs> uh, and ask you if you have any questions. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm supposed to. I'm supposed to do something. What am I supposed to do? <laughs> so, oh, there's a mic up there. There's a mic up there. Just talk into it. Yeah. Yes. Um, yes. I was just up visiting my grandson at Marshall University in Huntington. Great. Can you tell us how Marshall University got its name? <laughs> I cannot, sir. I'm sorry. Is it is it George Marshall or is it John Marshall? Is it John Marshall? I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I thought that was a trick, trick question you were asking me. <laughs> no? OK. No, no geography questions. I'm really bad at geography. You yes, mentioned uh, the Native Americans' issue of their sovereignty. Did not uh, Andrew Jackson say something that, about the court that now they made the decision, let's see them enforce it? Right. Well, he didn't say exactly that, but he basically said that. I, that, was a power, that was a paraphrase invented by the, the newspapers. But, but essentially, in the, uh, you know, John Marshall had these famous three cases in, in Indian, uh, involving the Indian tribes. Um, uh, 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 Johnson versus McIntosh, the Cherokee, uh, Cherokees versus Georgia, and, and Worcester versus Georgia. And Worcester versus Georgia uh, was a case where uh, Georgia uh, the Indian tribes in, in, uh, in Georgia were occupying land in which they had discovered gold. Uh, and Georgia decided, hey, that's a great idea. Let's take that land. Um, and um, so they tried to legislate in a way to get control of that land. Um, uh, one of the, uh, some missionaries from um, uh, New England came down to try to help the Indians. And uh, the, Georgia made it Ill illegal for white people to go onto the, this land from out of state, and they arrested these missionaries. Uh, the case went up to the Supreme Court, Worcester versus Georgia, and famously in that case, uh, uh, Marshall uh, issues this opinion where he, he basically says that the states can't interfere with the rights of Indians, that they are, that they are uh, a sovereign nation vis-a-vis -vis the, the state, and that, the only, uh, that they have a right to occupy and to possess their lands. Uh, and that um, only the federal government has the authority to um, acquire Indian lands through purchase, but not the states. The states cannot interfere with the tribes. Um, and then, essentially, uh, Andrew Jackson, who was you know, famously hostile to the Native Americans, uh, refuses to uh, honor the court's decision. Uh, the Jacksonian Congress passes the Removal Act forcing the removal of the Indian tribes, and that results in the famous, uh, infamous Trail of Tears in which many thousands of, of uh, Native Americans were, uh, died. So um, you know, that is the one instance in which a president has failed to comply with an order of the Supreme Court, and we hope it never gets repeated. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You have to go with the well, microphones. First of all, a comment. Uh, thank you for uh, awakening us Virginians to 
the great leader and hero that John Marshall was. Uh, I think you've done a wonderful job with your Thank book. You. Uh, in your book, you talk about his leadership of the Supreme Court, and you mentioned a little bit about that, but talk a little bit about that and it's the sense of collegiality that he developed and allowed him to really get the kinds of opinions that you've talked about here today. Thank you, Tom, for that, because I, I really wanted to get to that, and that was what I left out. But um, so, so, so Marshall, you know, he, he takes over the court. Um, uh, as I said, everybody issues their own opinions. And what Marshall did was, first he decided that um, let's all live together. Uh, and so he had the entire Supreme Court, all five justices then, uh, all, I'm sorry, six justices at that point, um, move into a boarding house together. And they take all their meals together and they live together for the next 34 years during his lifetime. <laughs> Hard to imagine that happening now with the Supreme Court. Um, <clears throat> I don't think there's a boarding house large enough, but, th but they all live together. And, and he basically, he developed a sense of fraternity among, among these men. They were all there without their, their, their spouses and uh, families. And so you know they, they would get together. And of course, the Supreme Court only met a few, few months of the year. And he would really, he famously always served Madeira wine. Um, and he would get them talking. And he would always try to work towards common ground. And that was really, that was really his talent. His talent was for finding common ground and trying to build unanimity and, and, and among the justices. And sometimes he had to give up a little bit. But he had such a great personality and a great intellect, he would win people over to his side. And so in, he, in his 34 years on the court, he participated in more than 1,100 decisions. More than half of those decisions were unanimous opinions. And all but, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, strike that. But more than half of the opinions he wrote himself of the 1,100 decisions. He wrote those opinions himself, which is Phenomenal, also considering that they're very long opinions and he wrote them all by hand. But all but 35 of those decisions were unanimous. Now, that's unthinkable today. Today, we would be lucky if in a single year there were 30 decisions that were unanimous on the court. Um, uh, it's very rare to have unanimous opinions today. But Marshall accomplished that. And it was that sort of talent for, for finding common ground and dealing pragmatically with problems without any precedent to guide him, that was really his great talent, his genius. If, if I heard your earlier comment correctly, you said John Marshall hoped the Congress would eliminate slavery. How does that square with an earlier Banner lecture here yes. where we learned he was an ardent slave owner and trader himself? Well, um, Paul Finkelman, for whom I have a great deal of respect in general as a historian, I think got this wrong. Um, uh, uh, in the following respect. Finkelman makes two claims. He makes one claim is that uh, Marshall had a, a large farm, a large plantation with uh, 200 slaves on the plantation that was heretofore secret and unknown to any of his biographers, including me. Um, there is no record um, in any of his correspondence of any transactions involving the purchase of these slaves. Uh, there's no record of any income or expenditures involving this large plantation that supposedly he owned. Um, the basis on which he asserts this is that Marshall had conveyed to his children um, a, a total of about 120 slaves. Um, and the, 
the only slaves that Marshall himself is known to have owned were about 15 or 16 household slaves here in Richmond. So the question is, where did these 120 slaves come from? I have no idea where the 120 slaves came from. But I, but I don't think that that's proof that he owned a secret plantation that no one's ever heard of and that there's no record of. But leaving that aside, the other more significant substantive claim that, uh, that Finkelman makes is that Marshall participated in uh, uh, a number of cases in the Supreme Court in which he upheld the rights of slaveholders vis-a-vis their slaves. So there were, um, I forget how many, maybe 12 cases that came before the Supreme Court. There were really sort of seven significant cases in which um, slaves uh, challenged the, um, the fact that they were being uh, held as slaves. What happened in those cases, and I think Finkelman doesn't appreciate this because he's not an attorney, um, uh, is that the uh, other justices on the court were pro-slavery. They were basically slaveholders or people who were pro-slavery, largely, except for Justice Story. He didn't have a majority on the court that he could have decided these cases with. So what he did in these cases was to narrow the issue strategically. So instead of dealing with the question of whether slavery was or was not constitutional or legal, what he instead did was to deal with very narrow technical questions, questions like whether or not, what the appropriate remedy was when a slaveholder failed to, uh, failed to record the name of their slave on a state, uh, uh, in the state record book, um, or how uh, the operation of doctrines like race judicata and collateral estoppel uh, uh, act, or what the statute of limitations is. And so by narrowing these cases, what he tried to avoid doing was creating a precedent for upholding slavery. His hope was at some point in the future, there would be enough other-minded men on the court that they could reverse, you know, that they could reverse the, the issue or that Congress would take care of it. I've, yeah. I've got two questions. The first pretty simple. When did uh, the court expand to nine justices? And secondly, I was curious about your elaborating on uh, McCullough versus Maryland being about slavery, or should we just read the book to find out the answer? <laughs> um, yeah. Well, I, you know, um, uh, nine justices, I think, occurs after the Civil War, but I, I cannot remember when. 69? Is 1869? Judiciary Act of 1869. 18th, yeah, it was after the Civil War. I couldn't remember the year. Uh, thank you. Um, uh, McCulloch, so, so the McCulloch case, uh, there's, there's two big issues in the case. The, the United States uh, creates the national, uh, Congress um, created, uh, okay, make this short. Uh, Congress, Congress decided to charter a national bank. Um, uh, and um, the bank was initially charted, uh, of course, by Alexander Hamilton. That's how he became Alexander Hamilton. Um, and, um, uh, but it had a limited charter, um, and it, it lapsed uh, 20 years later. Uh, then um, it lapsed just in time for the War of 1812. Um, and of course, one of the things that happened as a war, result of the War of 1812, otherwise known as Madison's War, um, is that the Congress needed money. They needed to borrow money, and so they had to create another national bank. Uh, so they created another national bank, um, the second national bank didn't go so well uh, in that it was highly corrupt um, and there was a lot of resistance to the national bank. 
Um, it led to the rise of Jackson. Jackson opposed the creation of the National Bank. Um, some of the states tried to put the National Bank out of business by passing laws which allowed the, the states to tax the National Bank branches. And the idea was to try to tax them out of existence. One of those states was Maryland. Um, in the case of McCulloch versus Maryland, basically uh, it was a challenge to the power of Maryland to tax the national banks. There's two issues in the case. One issue in the case is can Congress have the power to create these national banks? And secondly, if so, do states have the power to tax a federal agency? Um, and as to the first question, uh, Marshall um, uh, basically relies, uh, Marshall famously says that we must never forget it is a constitution we are expounding. And what he means by that is the constitution is not a static document. It is not what Justice Anton Scalia famously called a dead constitution. It isn't a document that was sort of fixed in its time, but it is rather, it is intended to be a vehicle. It's intended to be something which expands over time and which allows the country to move forward and progress. And Marshall says, that even though they didn't originally think about creating a national bank, um, there's nothing in the Constitution that forbids creating a national bank. And he says that under the necessary and proper clause in Article I of the Constitution, uh, what that means is he says not just that Congress can do things that are necessary in the colloquial sense in which we mean the word necessary, but rather Congress can do anything which is convenient, convenient to carrying out any of its other powers. Um, and so therefore, he says, you know, having a national bank is a convenient way if you're going to try to raise a military, if you're going to try to uh, have mail delivered, if you're going to try to pay federal employees. You need to have a national bank. Uh, and so that is a very significant expansion of congressional power. And it was, it was understood. I mean, at the time, it was criticized um, by people like uh, your own John Randolph um, as, as a threat to the institution of slavery. So that's, that, that's how, uh, why I think there's a connection there to the issue of slavery uh, and the National Bank. Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs>